Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. So uh, last week we were uh, celebrating our graduates. Uh, Today we are resuming our study of Abraham. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard my explanation that I'm choosing to refer to Abraham as a late bloomer. Uh, He didn't really do anything noteworthy that we know of until he was 75 years old, and then he did some amazing things after that point. So I find Abraham an encouraging figure in that it took him a little while to figure out what he was doing, and uh, I like to know that it's okay sometimes when I'm not maybe as fast as I ought to be. So God offers him a fresh start. He trusts God, and he steps out. One of the things that we all have to come to grips with in life is that all of us have limits. There are limits on what we're capable of. There's limits on what we can do. All of us are limited by our space, our time, and our energy. I've only got so much room that my body takes up. There's only so many spaces I can occupy at once. I can only be one place at one time. And when I'm there, I can only work with whatever time I've been given. All of us only have 24 hours in each day. We all decide how we're going to spend them and where we're going to spend them. And then we have our energy. In fact, even as you could talk about us having talents, I think our talents are largely a measure of how we've spent our space and our time and our energy. Based on how you've spent those, you might get really good at something over the years, but our space and our time and our energy. When our children are very young, we want to tell them, you know, you can do anything. You can do anything, and that's that's true, isn't it? But it's not true that you can do everything, right? You could do anything. You could pick any direction you want to go, but there is that point in life when you do have to start picking a direction and staying with a direction. You can do anything, but you can't do everything. Part of what growing wiser means is learning to work within our limits, to accept those limits, and even to flourish within those limits. At this part in the story, we're with Abraham's family. We've now gotten out of Egypt. Abraham is with his nephew, Lot, and they have a wonderful problem. They have a blessing problem. They've got so much stuff, materially, cattle, animals, possessions, people. Their household has grown so much that they're overcrowded. After they left Egypt, Abram took them back to the place they had been occupying before, and once the herdsmen from Lot's group start fighting with the herdsmen from Abraham's group, Abraham says, hey, we're going to we're gonna have to do something about this because there's too many of us in this one space, and we're going to have to make a change. And so in Genesis 13, verse 8, it says, so Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. 
to describe what Lot is doing here, I might compare it to something like this. Maybe you've been in a position in life, and I think especially when you're younger in life, maybe you're around someone who's a bit older than you who has a really fine collection of something. You know, everybody's got different stuff that interests them. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but maybe you've been in the presence of someone who had a really, really nice collection of something, and you didn't have any of those things. And you had the opportunity to be maybe at the residence or in their presence, and you're kind of discussing the collection, and they're so kind as to say, you know, I'd like for you to have one of these. So you take your pick of any of these things I've got. You just pick the one you'd like to have, and I'm going to give it to you. What's the right response to that? If you're the person being offered something, the correct response would be to say something humble like, oh, that is so kind of you to do that. You really don't have to do that, and, you know, this, this is all your stuff, so why don't you tell me which one you think I ought to have? You know me better. You know this stuff better. Why don't you recommend to me which one I ought to pick? Something like that. I can tell you what you shouldn't do is if someone were to offer you your pick of any of their collection, you say, okay, uh, which is your best, most expensive one? I'll take that one. That's not what you do, right? That's exactly what Lot does. In this scenario, Lot, his, his, his uncle approaches him and says, you know, we're getting overcrowded. I'm going to let you have your pick of anything you want. You just Choose which land is yours, and I'm going to let you have it. You go that way, I'll go the other way. And Lot looks to the very best land, and at the time, this this valley, the cities there in the valley, it's the closest thing they had in this region to, like, the Nile River in Egypt. You know, the Nile River was so good in Egypt, they kind of didn't even care if it rained or not. They had such a ready water supply. So this is a really nice, fertile area, and he picks the absolute best area for himself right out of the gate. And it would have been polite for him to say to his uncle, oh, uncle, you're being so kind to me. I would hate the thought of living farther away from you, but why don't you tell me where you'd like me to go? It's just nice of you to give me something. But that's not what he does. He says, what's the best land? I'll take that part. So he's a little greedy, it seems, as they move about. Incidentally, he settles near Sodom. We're going to have more to say about Sodom in future weeks, but this is a place known for violence, for people who are crooked and corrupt, And he decides to go live close to that place, which frankly is a bit of foreshadowing in the story. One of the things that I believe is going on here that I think many people, including us, struggle with is what I might would call a scarcity mindset or a scarcity ideology. And in fact, I think most of the world is caught up in a mindset of scarcity. Even a lot of the major theories of politics and how you ought to go about governing the world in some way are based off of a sense of scarcity. Even there's only so many people out there, so we've got to claw and fight with our competition to win and come out on top. Or maybe you say those who are strong should seize everything from the wealthy and distribute it to someone else, but there's always this sense of scarcity that somehow we have to be at battle with each other to get the things that we need. Pick your mentality, but most of us sometimes wrestle with those thoughts of scarcity. And it's not just about material things, and it's not always with great intensity. Sometimes it's just a little nagging thought in our heads that, I wish I had a few more things than I do, or I wish I could be a little more than I am. I wish a few more people knew who I was or acknowledged me for the things that I've done. So I posted something on Facebook earlier this week that I think encapsulates this, but I'm going to make this into a math equation, right? Everybody wants to do a math equation. So think of it like this. 
Guitars would be my weakness, right? I just like them. No matter how many I've got, I always feel like I need another one. No, I don't buy them all the time, but I always want to, right? So you pick the thing that interests you, and we're going to solve this for X. If X is the optimal number, what is the optimal number of the things you like, right? How many guitars do I need to have? Uh, Y would be my current number. They'd say the equation for a scarcity mindset would be X equals Y plus one. So however many I've got, I need one more, right? And it doesn't matter what it is. I've got my thing, you've got your thing, but it's easy to sink into that mentality of whatever it is I've got, I think I need one more than that. And once you get one more than that, why, you're right back to the same equation, aren't you? Now that I've got this many, well, that didn't fix everything. There's still some other ones I don't have, so maybe I need just, just one more. So whatever that is, there's a lot of different angles you can take on this. Put into practice, it, look, it might look something more like this. I must limit my this in order to have something else that I want. I'm going to give up something somewhere in order to get more of something else. Many people in the world might would say, I don't know if they'd say it, but they would practice saying, I must limit my relationship with God in order to have the stuff that I want. You think? You think anybody lives that way? Or another example might be, I must limit my church involvement in order to have the career that I want, right? We're all making choices with our time, our energy, and our space about what we're giving up in order to have something else. Now, I think a healthier mindset might would be something like, I must limit my possessions in order to have the relationship with God that I want. If I'm so driven by the things I want to have, I might not make time for the things that matter most. Or perhaps you might need to say, I must limit my work schedule in order to have the Christian life that I want. All of these things, I would say, are somewhat symptomatic of that scarcity mindset, where when you're living in a negative part of that equation, in the back of your mind, there's this ever-present thought that somehow, really, God isn't quite enough for me. I mean, I like God, I want God, but there's other stuff that I think I also have to have if I'm going to be happy. Now, last time we looked at Abraham a couple of weeks ago, I went ahead and pulled together my least favorite Abraham stories about some times that he really missed it. Well, the good news is there are some other occasions where he really got it right. And this would be one of those occasions because I think Abraham is exemplary here. Uh, Abraham is operating from a heart of abundance in how he deals with the problem and how he treats his nephew. In fact, long before Jesus taught these things, Abraham is already practicing them. Look at what Abraham does in this situation regarding property and think about the words of Jesus who would say, you know, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Don't worry so much about your body and what you're going to wear. Jesus says, just look all around you. Look at all the birds. They don't work. They don't store up. They have everything that they need. Look at the flowers. They don't do anything Aren't you much more important than them? And yet, look at the way that God dresses them, makes them beautiful. Not even Solomon, in his finest clothing, would compare to the lilies of the field. Aren't you of so much more importance than these? Don't you believe that God will give you what you need? Abraham really lives out that teaching, doesn't he? He's really leaning into that kind of a mindset. He's not worried about himself. He's not worried about tomorrow. 
He is not giving in in any way to a scarcity mindset that says, I've got to keep grabbing and clawing for more so no one gets the upper hand on me. Instead, Abraham is basing his life on the promises of God. I'm going to be the best person I can be. I'm going to share. I'm going to be kind. And I'm going to trust that God will give me what I need when I need it. I think that contrast is so fascinating between how he had just acted in Egypt and how he is now acting with his relative. Maybe at least temporarily he did learn something. Something else that's fascinating to me is that, you know, you kind of expect when you're in a bad circumstance and you cry out to God and you beg God to intervene, it's nice to know that God shows up. And for the sake of Sarah, God shows up and delivers her from the households that Abraham had turned her over to. But here in this situation, Abram isn't desperate. He isn't doing anything wrong. He isn't crying out for help. But in this story, God also intervenes. So it's nice to know that God doesn't only show us kindness when we're in a bad spot and begging for it. God shows us kindness even in the good times as well. Genesis 13 and verse 14 says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. You notice how God's actions mirror Abram's actions? This is also similar to something Jesus taught, where Jesus says, don't judge, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And he continues to say, for with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. The way that you judge others is how God is intending to treat you. And that's exactly what God does here. Abraham is magnanimous, he's kind, he's generous, and God turns around and says, I love what you're doing, and I'm going to outgive you, but I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to multiply your descendants. You're going to have everything you can see. It's all going to be yours. I think you can spot a difference between Abraham and his nephew Lot when Lot is looking at those crooked places, wanting to live near wicked people. But you know what Abram does? Both of them go, they set up their tents, but Abram takes an extra step that Lot didn't. Lot went for the nicest land and worried about himself. Abraham simply took what was left, but the first thing he did was set up an altar and worship. He didn't insist on getting only the best for himself. He wasn't only going to worship God when everything went his way. In every circumstance, Abram's reaction was, to trust God, but also to worship and to thank God. He has a heart that is generous, a heart that is grateful. In that last story, we saw how when Abraham shrank away from God's promises, that in fact it was curse that continued to spread, that things went worse for everyone. But now that Abraham is living more into God's promises, the result is blessing, just the way God said it would be. So Abram is a person who has accepted his limits. He's choosing to arrange his energy, his time, his possessions in a way that allowed him to have a life of faith and balance. He has chosen well, and his choice has led to blessing. Meanwhile, 
Over there near Sodom, things are not going so well. Lot begins by living near Sodom. By the time of this story, we learn that Lot is now living in Sodom. So he keeps, you know, we talk sometimes about the slippery slope, which is not always my favorite metaphor, but on this occasion, you see Lot just moving and inching closer and closer to the things he ought to stay away from. There's a guy who's a king at a place called Elam, and this king has dominance over these five cities. And all five of these cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah, have to pay him tribute. And in fact, for 12 years, they've been paying him tribute. But on the 13th year, these five kings of these five cities are kind of fed up with it. And so they get together, they band together, and they rebel. Collectively, they decide to rebel against this king of Elam. And so he goes and gets three of his buddies, and there's four kings versus five kings. And the king that had been dominating them once again comes down and just cleans out the place. So they pillage them, they take their goods, they destroy things, they take their, their women and children, their people, their animals, their food, they take everything with them. Now, as part of this, Abram's nephew, now living in Sodom, gets captured. Lot and his family are taken as plunder, and Abraham receives word of what has happened. So it says, Abram goes and gets 318 from his own household. He's got a large household. So he gets these 318 people, his servants, his distant relatives, and all together they go, and at night they ambush these four kings, and they totally dominate them. Abram is totally victorious. They get everything back. They get the possessions. They get the women and children, everything that had been captured. Now, this is a really fascinating story in Scripture because we have no other account of Abraham ever doing anything warlike. You know, up till this point and after this point, there's nothing you see about Abram to give you any indication. This is a guy who knows something about battle. So, surely he must have believed God had a hand in helping him along. And in fact, when Melchizedek, the king of Salem, acknowledges this, Abram readily acquiesced, yes, uh, God has given you this victory. Yes, God has given me the victory. And so Abram comes back to the kings in the south who had been defeated. Abram is able to do what they could not and win the victory. We encounter Melchizedek. I wish I had more time to dive into this guy. I probably ought to circle back to him at some point. Melchizedek is a fascinating figure because Jesus is later compared to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is unique in that he's a king, but he's also a priest, and Abram treats him as if he is a faithful person who believes in God. In fact, he gives him a tithe of everything that he has. He gives 10% of it to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, which signifies that Melchizedek was a person of higher standing. Later on, Scripture will speak of Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is not descended from the tribe of Levi, which is where all the priests normally came from. He comes from Judah. But he says he's like, he's like Melchizedek in that even before there was Levi or Judah, there was only Abraham. But before there was Abraham, there is Melchizedek already there as a priest. But Melchizedek has this high standing. Abram acknowledges him. But then the king of Sodom shows up, and you get the impression from how Abram deals with him. He thinks this guy is just a real scumbag. He has no use for this guy. The guy says, thanks so much. Just leave the people. You can keep all the goods for yourself. Abram says, I, I'm not taking a dime from you. I am not taking a dime from you. The other guys who helped me out, 
They can have some if they want it, but you're not going to give me anything because nobody's going to say that the king of Sodom made Abraham rich. The implication being that maybe he had gotten some of his resources by doing the kinds of things that the people in Sodom were doing. Abram wants nothing to do with that guy. He refuses to benefit in any way. So this story reminds us that as people of the promise, we are forever going to feel like foreigners and outsiders in the places that we live. That's what's going on with Abraham. You know, the king's, Scripture describes this big battle between all the kings and all the back and forth and political stuff. Abram doesn't show up for like 26 verses because he didn't have any interest in that conflict. He didn't want any part of that conflict. He's just trying to be a decent person in the world and practice his faith. But just like Abram, sometimes we get caught up in the world that we live in and we get caught up in battles that we didn't pick and sometimes we just have to have our part in just because of the way that things work out. But Abram reminds us of the way we ought to be in the world, that when we find our Melchizedeks, when we find faithfulness in the world, we celebrate it, we acknowledge it, we affirm it. When we find wickedness, we remove ourselves from it. We refuse to profit from it. We don't bind ourselves to it. Abram understood that he was an heir of the true king. Because I am God's heir, because I'm part of God's household, I don't need anyone else to sustain me. I have everything that I need. God is the source of my security. So thinking back on Abram and Lot, it is so important that we choose wisely how we will use our time, our energy, and our resources. I think all of us could probably find a bit of ourselves in one of these men or the other. The more we live from a place of gratitude and generosity, the more we see God bless us and especially bless our efforts to serve his kingdom. When we try to blend in with the people around us who have this scarcity, combative ideology they live by, we start becoming more and more like them. But just like Abraham, sometimes in your life, you're going to have a close tie to someone who's made some bad decisions someone who hasn't chosen perhaps as wisely as you have chosen. For Abram, that person was his nephew, Lot. Lot continued to move toward corruption. He lived around corrupt people. He became more like them, but then he got sucked into that whole battle and even kidnapped. Now, Abram could have been really self-righteous and said, no, I'm not going to do anything for him. He's the one who chose to go live over there. But Abram decided to just be the bigger person, and he went to rescue his nephew because he felt like he still needed to show love, even if Lot had been irresponsible. And it's a dilemma, isn't it, in, in real life as we try to live out this thing of wanting to really love people, even when we see they've made choices that have affected them? You know, several years ago, I, I don't remember which congregation this was, but I was talking with someone about the benevolence program at their church, and they were really proud of themselves because they had set aside a pretty big budget for benevolence that they had, you know, to help people who need it, as they described it. But then they started talking to me about their criteria, and they said, well, the deal is, though, we don't help anyone who's in their current crisis situation because of bad decision-making, or if they have any habits at all, if they drink, if they smoke, if they're spending any money on that stuff, we're not going to give them a dime. So if, it's, if they're in a bad financial circumstance because of either bad decisions or they have any bad habits contributing to it, they wouldn't give them anything. So guess what budget was usually still available by the end of the year? You know, who are you going to help if not the people who've made some unfortunate choices and gotten themselves in a hard situation? It doesn't mean we don't challenge people to live better, but sometimes we just have to be compassionate because the right way to be is to be 
compassionate. It's what it means to be a person of hope that I trust and I believe that if you would turn to God, you could have a better life. You could move in a better direction. People do get themselves in trouble because of the decisions that they've made. If you're that person who's in a position to be an influence, you want to be kind, you want to be truthful, you want to share what's appropriate, and you also prayerfully want to be looking for those opportunities to teach and to show a better way. We're not interested in being the ones who are always saying, I told you so, or I'm smart, and how could you be so foolish? But maybe you're also sometimes that person who has made bad decisions. You've made choices that have made your circumstances more difficult than they need to be. If you've been that person, my challenge to you would be to consider who it is you're surrounding yourself with. Lot surrounded himself with the people from Sodom and just the way they were a violent people, he got caught up in their violence, even though I'm sure he would have said he, he hadn't really intended to take part in it. Who is it that you're surrounding yourself with? Put people in your life, spend time with people in your life who really want what's best for you. And if you know someone genuinely cares about you, sometimes the thing you might need to hear is the thing you don't want to hear. But we have to surround ourselves with people who want what's best for us. And if we're in a position of strength where we could be a helping hand, we should always have compassion on those who haven't made choices as well as we have. We do the best we can, and we have compassion on those who maybe haven't done the same. So I'm enjoying working through the life of Abraham. We've got a lot more exciting stories in the upcoming weeks as we work through some of the different situations that he faces in his life. Uh, this is a time that we set aside in our worship where if there is anyone who has a special need, uh, we're offering to help you any way that we can. Uh, one of the ways that you can respond to us is that both in the, in the bulletin that you have or also on the screen, you can point the camera in your phone at it. It'll pop up a link that you can click. And uh, we've got a little form so you can tell us if there's something that you have that's a prayer request, maybe you moved houses, you got a new address, maybe there's just something you wanted to tell us about, or uh, maybe there's a more serious commitment you're wanting to make in your life. That's one way that you can talk to us. We're also more than happy to talk to you right now. If you've got something on your heart, if you're wanting to come back to God, if you're wanting to, to make better choices and how you're using all that God has given you, um, we'd love to talk to you, to pray for you, whatever we can do. We would invite you to come forward to the front as together we stand and sing this song.